Hi, I'm Howard Tierski. Welcome to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast, where we focus on the stories of large-scale digital transformations told by the people who lead them. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast. Oh, man, I have an awesome guest today, a friend of mine uh, named Ash Duper, and he reminded me to make sure that I said his name right, uh, Duper like super. So I'm going to start calling you Ash Super Duper. <laughs> um, and so uh, let me let me bring Ash on, but actually let me just uh, tee up because uh, you've got so much background and experience, Ash. Um, but let me just tee up a few things I know about you. You are a data and analytics and artificial intelligence expert, and you were voted one of the top 100 data and analytics executives in 2019. You have worked as the chief data and analytics officer for Publishers Clearinghouse. And we'll let you tell us a little bit more about it. But for anyone who doesn't know, I mean, I would imagine Publishers Clearinghouse has just about as much customer data as almost any company one can imagine. I know it's massive when you think about the amount of direct mail and other kinds of digital things that Publishers Clearinghouse does as a marketing data behemoth. Before that, you were the Senior Vice President and Global Head of Research and Analytics at the NPD Group. For anyone who doesn't know the NPD Group, they are uh, like Nielsen. They collect data from stores and all kinds of different retail locations all around the country, maybe the world. I'm not sure, actually. Ash can tell us about that. And they aggregated together to allow you to slice and dice that data in tons of different ways. Point is another company that is just swimming in data and, in fact, whose main business is collecting, aggregating, analyzing, and providing data back. Bottom line is we are privileged today to have with us a data expert extraordinaire. You know, I want to talk a lot with Ash about data, but also artificial intelligence, machine learning, because new ways of leveraging data is one of the most exciting areas today in terms of creating better digital businesses, better digital customer experiences. Let me turn it over to Ash. What did I miss? Anything you want to add? Anything else we should know? I wanted to do a bunch of the talking because I know you're so humble that you wouldn't have said all that stuff about yourself. <laughs> Tell us what else, what did I miss that everyone should know before we dive in and start picking your brain for all the knowledge you have? Thank you. Thank you, uh, Howard, for that wonderful introduction. And uh, I'm, I'm really uh, humbled by that. No, you you picked up a lot on a lot of these things. Uh, just a little bit on uh, my last role at PCH, Publishers Clearinghouse, we had about 100 million customers. Not many companies have that many customers, US only. And a lot of data was being collected on a daily basis. We had about 2 billion page views on a monthly basis. So you can imagine a lot of data being collected. And Prior to that, you mentioned the NPD group. Yes, not many people know about NPD is what uh, Nielsen is to CPG, NPD is to non-CPGs. Every point of sale uh, transaction uh, was being captured from Walmart to Bloomingdale's. That's how much of data that we were getting and processing on a regular basis. So I would say uh, being a person with data science background, I've worked in big candy stores. <laughs> yeah, it's great when you have that much data. Absolutely. And another thing I know NPD is responsible for, NPD book scan is another important part of NPD. They are the ones that collect the information about how many books are sold and in stores, on Amazon, everywhere, uh, and makes that available to folks like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and USA Today when they do their bestseller list. So if you look on any of those bestseller lists, there's usually some small print somewhere that says, 
data from NPD BookScan. And that's just another example of a category in which they're aggregating data from, you know, I don't even know how many, how many points of sale, how many points of retail distribution is somebody like NPD aggregating data from every day? I don't know what's the count right now, but when I was there, it was a lot. I think any retailer of some kind of significance was sharing their data with the NPD group. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that was a lot, I would say. Cool. Well, uh, the first direction I wanted to go, there's so many things we could talk about, but you know, if it's one thing, it's challenging to aggregate that much data, but then when you've got this giant mound, the, you know, the candy store, as you say, of data, some people don't see it as a candy store. They see it as this giant intimidating thing. Like, all right, now I've got petabytes of data. What do I do with it? And I think there's probably a lot of companies and, and people who work at companies who are listening, thinking we have all this data in my company, but I don't know if we're really using it for that much. These days, AI, machine learning, we hear these terms thrown around so much. And I almost feel like everything gets AI slapped on it, you know, like, oh, here's a toaster. It has built in artificial intelligence. You know, it toasts your bread. You tell it how long you want it toasted. And then it uses artificial intelligence to toast it for the exact amount of time that you told it to. And it's like, is that really artificial intelligence or is that just a timer? I think it's just popular these days to call almost everything artificial intelligence. For folks who aren't insiders in this world of machine learning and artificial intelligence, what really is artificial intelligence and what distinguishes it from just normal business rules or normal logic that you might put into a system? A really good question, Howard, and we'll get into the data piece as well, the petabytes of data later on in our conversation. But I think when you think of artificial intelligence, in my mind, it's 10 miles wide and 10 miles deep. The AI is the new buzzword in the industry. I agree with you. Just as like big data was the buzzword in the last 16, 17, 18, you know, AI is the new buzzword. But there's a small confusion in, in everyone's mind because in most of the cases, we have been utilizing machine learning. Machine learning is a part of artificial intelligence. So if you think of it as in, in the most layman terms, artificial intelligence will have two areas. One is deep learning and the other one is, is, is machine learning. Deep learning uses a data which is not only just a structured data, but it could use unstructured data as well. So what you and I talk is, is called natural language processing. And when you can do the natural language processing, there's way more different algorithms that are used for doing you know, what you call it is artificial intelligence. The distinction here is, I'll give you an example. So another buzzword, by the way, these days is conversational AI. If you remember back in about a year and a half ago, when Google's uh, CEO had unveiled Google's assistant, it was taking the commands from someone just like Siri does, and then trying to make an appointment at, at the hair salon. All of that is actually deep learning. Uh, that is all taking natural language processing, understanding what those words really mean, and then trying to act upon that so that is what I would call as this. yes, that is artificial intelligence. That's the use of artificial algorithms to create those things. On the other hand, I'm sure you bought at Amazon or you buy a few times in a day at Amazon. Yeah. Right at the bottom, when you see uh, you know, things like recommendation of products, people who bought this also bought this. So that is another field which is called the machine learning. And in most of the cases, it uses structured data, though there are algorithms now that use unstructured data as well. A typical recommendation engine would come under machine learning, and that is how you would look at and say this is machine learning algorithm. 
Both of them, again, are part of artificial intelligence. Hence the confusion when you see that everyone tries to call everything as, as AI, that's what they're trying to, to do. So let me just ask a clarifying question, because if I want to implement a feature like people who bought this also buy that, I may just be writing a very simple database query. I'm just saying, all right, look up everybody who bought this product and then get a, a list of all the other products they bought and then do a count to see how many of these products occur multiple times in that list and then see which products occur the most times in the list, maybe in the last six months or something. And that's my answer. And so in a scenario like that, if I just create a rule like that, that's just running a query and then just showing the results, am I doing AI? Is that enough to be AI? Like, <laughs> you know, because it sounds like something we would have done 20 years ago. It sounds very straightforward. Or is there some extra layer that has to be put on top of it more than just I'm doing a query and just listing whichever products have the highest occurrence in this list? Yeah. So if you were to do that one-time effort, which is, you know, uh, just give a recommendation of one-time make you could do those queries and then put it in front of the, uh, of the customer, that is a database query. That is, there's nothing AI in that. That is simple code that you would write. However, the piece, which is machine learning that comes in, there are two parts. One is as your customers are buying every day, there are new relationships that are being created. There is, you know, th the type of products that they are buying, not only just the first one, but, you know, five other products that they buy. So there's a technique called as collaborative filtering, which is a very simple algorithm uses to ingest all of this data, learns from what all the customers are buying and what are you as a customer are likely to buy next. It does have a layer of predictiveness that is added on to this piece, uh, not just the queries. And that's the, the subtle difference. You're not just writing a code, which is a rule. And once you've created a rule, the self-learning aspect of it is not there. Whereas in the machine learning aspect, there is a self-learning aspect uh, built in. Great. Thank you. And so uh, let's talk about some examples. I know you've used these tools to deliver some very powerful business results that are highly measurable. What I love about some of your stories is it's one thing if I am trying to find out something and I know exactly what I'm looking for. I'm trying to find out, I don't know, does it rain more in Arkansas or Alabama? And then I go research that and I'm like, okay, I found out the answer. It's, I'm sure it's Alabama. But uh, it's another thing to be like, yeah, what can I learn? I'd like to know more about weather patterns in the U.S. that might be interesting. And, and all of a sudden, I get these interesting insights back. It's almost like I didn't even have to think about what to ask. It just found interesting information. I think that's when something starts to feel to me like that cinematic fantasy of real <laughs> artificial intelligence instead of just what feels like a little bit of a robotic, okay, I'm going to figure this out and tell you who bought this and also bought that. So I'd love to hear some of your stories because I know you're just full of stories stories of things that you've gone and done and where you found things that were both not necessarily obvious and also that drove real business value. Sure. So I'll tell you, uh, you know, one of the uh, things that I've used to give you, you know, a flavor on, on what you're uh, asking for, there's a technique as part of machine learning. It's called unsupervised learning. I think that's what my kids are doing now during COVID. <laughs> Isn't it? Is that the same thing? <laughs> yes, possibly. <laughs> So the unsupervised learning is a technique which takes the data and at a very uh, high level, if you throw data in, in there, it'll try and find patterns which are unbiased, which are where you as a human being or you're not giving the instructions to say, go find this pattern for me, right? Typically what we have done in the past is we would look at the data and we would start saying classic case of segmentation. 
at one point in time, Best Buy was big in this in, in my mind where they wanted to, as soon as a customer walks into the door, they wanted someone to identify what segment the customer would fall in. And then accordingly, a salesperson would approach that person to, uh, to get some conversions. Now, what happens is in that particular case, you are limited to five or seven types of patterns, seven type of you know segments that you can identify someone as and say, um, as soon as you see someone, do X, Y, and Z. Now, the beauty of taking an unsupervised learning is uh, you can A, throw tons and tons of data in there, let's say five years of purchase history. Take five years of purchase history, add additional data. Now we started talking about data. Today, there is so much data, Howard, available on us. It is us, I would say. We leave a lot of digital breadcrumbs all across our digital being. And when we leave those digital breadcrumbs, there are companies who are actually selling that data to anyone who, who's buying it. And when you try and bring these two together, which is your first party data, which is your actual purchase behavior data, and start adding layers, like what you were talking about, this is all the seasonal data, all the what type of uh, cars do I drive and uh, what kind of uh, mortgages do I have? All of that data is freely publicly available when you start putting all of this together. Uh, and throw it in what I call as the unsupervised learning algorithms, you will come out and see patterns that are amazing because these patterns may be small at times, and I call them as microclusters. As a normal person, as you and I will, may or may not even think about those patterns, that there are certain customers. One of the examples I have is in there are certain customers who averages 65 they're only buying between the first and the seventh of the month. As you say, well, all of us, you know, could be doing that. But when you start layering the social security paychecks that come to them on top of that, you start saying, oh, that's the spending power that someone has. Just during that time frame, the person is actually has that extra 10, 20, $50 to spend and do whatever they have to do from, from that perspective. This is truly the, the power of machine learning when you have a large amount of data and you want to understand customers and customers' really psyche as to what they're doing and why they're doing. That's when you use a, a technique like that. You don't think, hey, I'm going to have the system analyze days of the week and spending. You don't, you're not asking that question. You're just giving you're it all kind of information. And then it notices an interesting pattern and comes back to you and says, hey, check out this pattern. Correct. Right. Yeah. That's kind of like what you'd want a good analyst to do, right? Like if you hired somebody and say, look at this data, that feels to me more like what we think of as really artificial intelligence. Right. Figuring things out. Yeah. And how much of what comes back is relevant? Like, are you getting 50 things back and most of them are nonsense and only one of them is really interesting like that? Or is it good enough to kind of only surface at the top of the pile the things that really are interesting? You know, at times you will have some of these microclusters are too small. So think of that long tail that you would have. And at some point in time, you have to say, I have to let go of the tail because you have only five customers out of a million customers who are doing something like that. So I'm going to let it go. I'm not bothered about that piece. But you look at the top of the cream, there are definitely patterns that maybe you see about 50, 70, 100 patterns that are relevant. And yes, the good analyst has to actually then take that pattern and and this is where the challenging part is, and I don't think so artificial intelligence is there yet, to explain it to a marketing person what that pattern is. The AI will show you the pattern, but it's not smart enough to say, so here's what you should do about it. Correct. Got it. 
What did you do with that particular insight? Like, was there something you could do to make more money knowing that you had these people who only bought during the first week of the month? So the type of products you put in front of them, because now you start combining it, you know, what kind of products they're buying. If you had a thousand customers in that group and only a hundred are buying, a marketer's goal is how can I make it 120, right? 150. Uh-huh. And the minute you start putting the relevant products, the relevant messages, personalize it more, you start getting that additional traction. Uh, mm-hmm. You start creating products. Okay, buy now, pay later. Could be, uh, could be any of those areas where you can start looking at in making a better engagement with your customers so that you can get a higher conversion and better satisfaction. And I suppose also, if you know someone's probably not going to buy during certain times of the month, it's an opportunity to just, just don't bother. Save- don't save on your mark. Don't retarget them at that time of the month or don't, exactly. don't, don't send them direct mail or other higher cost types of uh, marketing. Exactly. And, you know, there are areas where you would just say that, hey, just as that pattern of between first and the seventh month, there are certain people who would buy only during Thanksgiving time. That's all. They are buying because, you know, they're in that gift mode and they're buying stuff to give to and whosoever they want to. Throughout the year, they would not buy. But as a marketing engine, you don't know. You're saying, hey, Harvard bought something from us during the uh, Thanksgiving times for the next six months. I'll keep on promoting and going back to Howard and say, uh, buy something else from us as well. Yeah, that's very interesting. Well, have you got another one? I'd love to like this days of the week social security check one is interesting. Have you got another kind of uh, different type of example where you got some insight that you're able to make money with? You know, another area where which may be relevant to a lot of uh, people, uh, Harvard here is especially in the in the digital side. There's a lot of advertisement. There's a lot of money being spent on digital advertising. And the beauty of utilizing machine learning, or I would say to a little bit of a deep learning uh, technique to understand where exactly uh, your advertising is effective or not. Mm. Uh, that's, that's another area. You know, an example of this would be, this was at PCH. We used to spend a lot of money on our uh, paid media acquisition and our TV advertising. And there's always a question on how can we improve? How can we actually use that budget and still keep the same level of engagement with customers? The CFO's dream, right? Cut the exactly. budget in half, but don't reduce the sales. That would be great. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think there are uh, with newer techniques, like if you think of MTA, multi-touch attribution, or even, um, I wouldn't go into too much details, but even if you take last click and not go into the fancy uh, techniques of multi-touch attribution and combine that with lifetime value models, first of all, just by the sheer amount of you know what you're trying to do, you're trying to take all the data that you can get from an acquisition perspective. So if you're doing MTA, you're looking at journey prior to the customer landing on your site. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of data to bring in and crunch. And then you're talking, when you think of LTV, you're taking every single transactional and, and touch point that you have with a customer to make sure that you can predict what the LTV is going to be. Again, from a data perspective, that's a lot of data to crunch. And the techniques there are, as I said, you know, you can take MTA is pretty sophisticated right now and then uh, align it with the lifetime value models and do a prediction so that on the paid media analyst, who is sitting every day in who has the charge to spend, let's say, that $50,000 on a Google campaign. 
he or she, if they are better equipped to say that $50,000 that I just spent is only going to give me back in 20,000 of lifetime value. So I just lost $30,000 in that campaign, right? Mm -hmm. That kind of level of intricacy, if you can bring to a paid media analyst, then that paid media analyst can do something with it, can actually reduce the CPMs or negotiate that I'm not going to pay that high uh, CPMs on this, CPAs, whatever metrics that they are working with, or simply turn to another channel because that channel is not profitable. On the other hand, if you see that that $50,000 is bringing you $120,000 in lifetime value, then go gangbusters with, uh, with that piece. You know, it's funny listening to you describe this. I think of that old marketing adage that 50% of our marketing spend is wasted. We just don't know which half, which you know? <laughs> and now I'm wondering, like, should this take us down to only 10%? Like, what's what's the new number? It seems like from what you're describing, it shouldn't be that 50%. In the old days, you could argue that, hey, that's it. There's nothing to be done. There's a certain wasteful component to marketing. And I'm sure it's not down to zero because after all, this targeting is still not perfect. But how much have we saved in terms of that waste in using these types of technologies? So, you know, I've done right. I've seen anywhere from 10% to almost about 30% improvement in ROI in what you're doing. So you can really, really uh, understand what's, uh, what's going on in there. Wow. And is yeah. that mostly from reduction in cost or increase in revenue or, or both? Well, mostly it is from optimization is what I would say, because Mm -hmm. once you start optimizing it, in a way, it's reduction in cost, because in this particular case, this is money going out the door every time you spend that money. But in return, what you're getting is people who have subscribing to your your services. So that's the key piece here is Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if you can maintain the same number of subscribers and reduce your budget by 30%, and if you spend, let's say, a sizable amount, let's just say even $10 million on your advertising campaigns, you could save a good $3 million to your bottom line. And that is not a trivial amount to be not so worried about. If someone lets you keep spending at the $10 million level and you don't save the $3 million, you can wind up with a third more subscribers, right. assuming the market's there to, to go get. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it is, you know, the conversations change once you have those kind of information. The CFO is not talking about, you know, okay, give me back that $3 million. The CFO is then talking, what can we do with this $3 million more? Right. Well, that's the ultimate, right? When marketing can really be measurable and you have clear attribution and you can demonstrate that it's a machine, you know, you put in a dollar, you get out $2. As soon as you show a CFO that he says, well, how much money can I give you that you can do that? You know, because of course, if for every dollar you can put out even a dollar 20 after both the cost of sales and the cost of goods sold, then heck, find every nickel you can and put it into that machine. Why wouldn't you? Exactly. Anyway, so those are some of the practical ways of, you know, yes, we get caught up into the ideas of, you know, AI and algorithms, but ultimately what you really want to do is make AI work for you, Mm. either to find new revenue streams or to find those efficiencies in which you could move the company forward. So let me ask you, if a company's thinking to themselves, wow, we don't have any major AI programs in place. I mean, I guess in theory, anyone who's doing some Facebook advertising or some Google advertising is leveraging someone's, some AI as part of those types of cloud platforms. But if someone's thinking, you know, and my marketing team isn't really doing anything with AI, how do I get started? Some of it just feels like it's a whole other universe. 
What would be the sort of crawl, walk, run approach that a company would take to start to dip their toe in and start to learn about it and to figure out what technologies are the beginner technologies, so to speak? I would, I would start by saying, don't ask the question how AI can help me. <laughs> okay. Start by asking the question is simple. Just be, if you're a CMO, ask the question, how can I reduce my spend? I'm just saying, mm-hmm. how can I increase my loyalty, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. How can I increase my retention? So ask the questions that you are asking. And you should have someone in your team, if not, you know, a counterpart in in the data science or data analytics side to help you answer those questions. Now, helping them with these questions, what technique they're using is that becomes secondary, whether they're using a machine learning or a deep learning technique, because some companies may not have that level of sophistication. They may not have that level of data, but the very fact that you can start from there and then go into which of these uh, technologies can really help you or not. Start small. The other pieces is my advice is don't try to boil the ocean because you will find areas, especially just by utilizing, just asking simple questions on what's wrong, how can I improve my engagements and Mm -hmm. things like that will bring out these things. But we've done some work with IBM Watson. It's not the kind of thing you can just start playing around with one afternoon and get some benefit, right? (laughs) Right, right, right. Um, But I wonder if there are some that you'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's starting with the Ferrari. You know, start here. This is something that you can start to put some data into, something that's maybe a little easier. Or is there nothing like that yet? It's all pretty uh, like you got to get your hands dirty in terms of leveraging the stuff in terms of where it is today. So you bring up a good question there. Howard, there are companies, there's a wide spectrum. If you're just starting, there are two things that you really need. One is to understand where you are in your data journey. If your data is very fragmented and sits all over the place, I would say 95% of the companies have that problem. The very first thing you have to start thinking about is how do I bring all of that data in one place? No, no, now, I, I just want to skip to the cool stuff. That sounds like a real pain. Yeah. <laughs> So first thing is figure out where your data and where your data journey is and how you're going to bring that data together. In terms of utilizing cool machine learning or deep learning techniques, there are actually a couple of companies that are very lightweight, a scene data robot and H2O. These are companies where they've made it simple enough for algorithms to be used. They are lightweight. I would call them lightweight as compared to the other uh, other piece that I've used. Simple enough. Go and, you know, you don't have to be a data scientist. Uh, just even some simple understanding of statistics uh, can help you get there. Typically, when we build models, uh, there is a challenger and champion. And you could have 10 challenger models and one champion model. All of that requires thinking and thought process and someone with you know some sophisticated background in statistics to do that. However, these companies have made it simple. They're saying, okay, we're going to do all the thinking for you and then we'll bring out a champion model that you can go and utilize. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So there are some lightweight tools and techniques that you can use in order to get started, as I would say. Cool. 
Well, let me ask you one last question. I remember when computers were first being pushed for use in the home, whenever that was 30 years ago or more. And they were always always like, well, what are the uses of this? And, you know, they would say, well, you could keep your recipes in your computer. And to this day, I don't think anyone keeps their recipes you know, <laughs> in their computer. You know, sometimes we have a, an amazing technology and it's clear it has some applications. Like, I don't know, my first computer, we mostly used to play games. I never dreamed it would be used for so many things. I wonder in your mind, what are the killer applications of of AI and machine learning that we haven't really seen yet? What are the things we're going to see in the next few years where it's in a domain that maybe we didn't expect it beyond the types of data analysis, marketing types, applications that we've been talking about? You know, one of the most interesting areas I feel that we have not seen yet, but there are some early signs of if that technology comes to life, I just cannot even fathom as to what the difference in our lives are going to be. There's a company, Elon Musk's company, it's called Neuralink. If you've not heard about it, go Google it and you'll find what it is all about. What it is doing is it is creating a direct interface from your brain to AI and to your computers. These are small chips that they are going to put in your brains. And believe it or not, this looks like very hi-fi and sci-fi, right? It is real. They have started doing the tests. And if that becomes a reality, imagine the information that you and I process today with the power of those chips I don't know where and how this will all end up. You're making me it think is, of that, that scene from The Matrix where he says, I know Kung Fu. You know? <laughs> frankly. He just downloaded it, right? <laughs> yes. You know, as I said, that is the fantasy, but, but it is in real. Like, you know, they are, that someone's going to work every day trying to actually do that versus it just being something in science fiction. Yes. And if you think that, you know, today it looks like a far-fetched dream, but from right. a data perspective too, in the next five to seven years, the amount of data that we have today will double every 12 hours. That's what's predicted. Wow. So by the time we go to sleep and by the time we get up, the amount of data that we have is twice as much and either will be twice as smart or, or not. Wow. <laughs> so how we would process this data and how we would make uh, you know utilization of this data in the next five, seven years, that's a fascinating area that's coming our way, uh, Howard. So thank you, Ash. Super duper job. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to thank everybody who's listening or anyone in the future who has simply downloaded this podcast directly to their brain. Because don't forget, this very podcast, <laughs> which will be available for years to come, someone could have downloaded it to their brain and, and consumed it in one second. So if that's how you've consumed this content, then thank you as well for everybody who's been listening. And thank you again, Ash. This has been a very interesting discussion. And um, we'll see you all next time on the Winning Digital Customers podcast. Thank you, Howard. And uh, thank you for inviting me. It was oh, my uh, surely a pleasure.